Hey everyone, before we start, make sure to give us a like, a rating, and to follow us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you can listen to podcasts. That way, we can talk more about what we love, and that's animation. Now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And boy, do we have a varied show for you today. We have reviews for Cat Burglar, an interactive short on Netflix. We've got The Cuphead Show, Child of Kamiari Month, The Orbital Children, and The Legend of Vox Machina. But first, Cameron, do we have any news uh, for this week? Other than the trailer for, well, the second trailer for The Bad Guys? Well, first off, that new trailer added some more details to the world building of the bad guys, and there's not much else to talk about with that one. It looks fantastic. There's not much else to add on that we didn't say during our, like, here's what's coming out in 2022. I know there are fans of both Spirit Untamed and the Boss Baby family business, but then you look at the bad guys, and it's like, okay... I want that push everything else out of the way. <laughs> it's like doing that old Tex Avery uh, wolf whistle reaction when you see that animation and such. Mm-hmm. Really, I just wanted to bring that up at the top because I just really want it to be April already so I can watch this movie because every time I see even 30 second YouTube ads for this movie, it just looks like it's going to be one hell of a time. I kind of spoke for a reason of leading with the Tex Avery reference. Right, Mike. because the first thing we're talking about is, honestly, just on the concept alone, something very unique, and that is Cat Burglar, an interactive short on Netflix that's basically how it works is there are, what, like four or five different sections, each with like three different trivia questions. If you get them right, you get to advance the plot, and if you get them wrong, you get sent to cat heaven. Well, one of the endings is you can also end up in hell. That's a, a pretty fun ending. So this was made by the same people who worked on that interactive Black Mirror special, Bandersnatch. And what the big gimmick is with this one is it's an animated short about 12 minutes in total. Well, 12 minutes in length if you happen to make it past the trivia questions. Every sequence that you encounter in the short has a multitude of different scenarios that you have to answer trivia questions by go- like pushing the left or right button. And if you succeed in answering all three, you get to move on to the next section. If you miss one question you die (laughs) that's the part that really tripped me up is you have to get it perfect or else you're done this is very much in the same vein as those old arcade games don bluth worked on dragon's lair and space ace and it's all done in his spirit of a tex avery cartoon and if you are following closely to all the scenarios either when the cat dies or just observing any part of the show there are a ton 
of references and Easter eggs to all the shorts Tex Avery worked on. You mm-hmm. can see like Screwy Squirrel during one death sequence. You can see another sequence where like like a line of clothes and half of them are all just skins of different characters from the Tex Avery like Snoopy shorts and what have you. One of them was Droopy's like arch nemesis. I think I saw a wolf in there too. Yeah, that you can see them in there. Uh, I noticed probably like the second or third time I did the short was in the room with all the security cameras. If you pay attention to the book that the that the security guard is uh, reading, it's all like different dog puns. Like one of them is crime and puggishment, old yeller. There's a third one um, that I'm drawing a blank I think it's on. it's like Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, so every section that this short introduces has, again... Like different variations of getting past that section. So every time you play the short and every time you get to a certain part, a multitude of different ways to get past it happen. Like you either like do a digging sequence at the beginning or a tight rope sequence or a uh, pole vault thing or like have to get past the security dog and his security cameras. Uh, you either like do little shadow puppets or make him feel like he's on the ocean and like you get the idea. Now, it might look like a Tex Avery cartoon, but I know some people need to get over this, but I'm just going to bring it up anyway. Yes, the visuals have that digital polish to them, but all things considered, I think it looks pretty solid, like visually they know what they're referencing and they love what Tex Avery and his time at, I think MGM is when he started doing all those shorts, like after uh, Warner brothers and such. He spent like pretty much the rest of his career at MGM. And in my opinion, that's when he was putting out his best material, but getting back to cat burglar, there's one detail in this that I kind of like a touch better than the Looney Tunes cartoons and that's like they actually added a little bit of you know that those like film grain that you see in like in like the classic shorts they really went the extra mile to make this look like it came right from like the 40s and 50s that's a very nice little touch and the voice acting is pretty solid it's really just three different people James Dalmian, Alan Lee and Trevor Duvall. Yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very light cast, but they had to keep things simple due to the nature of the short. Now, I have to ask, did you ever get a perfect or no? I got it perfect at least after the first time because when I went first went through this short, I did the like experimenting. Like if I've seen this situation before or the scenario before, I go past it. But if it's one I never seen before, I make sure the cat dies. <laughs> um, by the way, the cat's name is Rowdy and the security guard dog is named Peanut. And they find different ways to make this a very, how you say, like a slightly edgier Tex Avery cartoon. Like they were already like pretty violent at points, which is always kind of the joke with stuff like Tom and Jerry and during that era of cartoons and shorts but this one has a little more edge to it the one thing that keeps this from being just kind of a one and done situation 
the ending and the painting that you get is different for five or so time. And I don't think I got through all of them. I think I only got through it like maybe three times. The biggest problem with this is like the biggest problem with those dragon layers and space age games. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's not as fun to play. I get that they didn't want people to just breeze through this, so they made it extremely punishing, where you have three lives, and then if you get one question wrong, you die. And I just wish after a while they gave you a a way to just skip to the ending puzzle sequence so you can see the new ending and such for all of them. Because otherwise, someone's going to go through all of this, record it all, and then upload it to YouTube. I mean, that's always the biggest problem. And that's kind of like what happened when they made Dragon Slayer. Instead of just like breezing through it by pushing like left, right, jump, attack, or what have you, they added secret items that you need to get uh, throughout the whole game. And some of them are just way too obscure and tedious to get. Man, I mean, I'm sorry. You can only get me for so long with Don Bluth's amazing animation <laughs> before it's just like, I don't want to play this. I'll just watch a YouTube video of it. <laughs> and that's almost a thing here. I got three out of the five paintings and then I was just kind of done with it. For better or for worse, the interactive part of this can be frustrating because it's not that these questions are hard. It's that they only give you a limited amount of time and you have to get all of them right. And because of that, if you have a sort of addictive personality, you could be like sitting here for up to like three hours trying to get through everything. Yeah, I just wish there was just more to the situations at hand than just going through the same rooms over and over again. I mean, granted, they do kind of speed it up a little at points. But at the end of the day, it's the same exit. You know what the next section is going to be. And it's just a shame because I kind of like the idea of these kind of games and experiences. But I do wish they had a section on the Netflix page to watch all the the different deaths, the different victories, the different endings. Because I like some of the endings. I love the spinning newspaper one by the third time. That's a good one. That one's hilarious to me. But that's really it about Cat Burglar. There's not a whole lot to talk about. But would you like to see more of this stuff with animation? Because there was that one moment in time where Netflix was really pushing the whole interactive film or show or animation experience with a choose your own adventure kind of way and then everyone was like oh that's kind of neat and then they started playing it and it's like oh my gosh this is frustrating as heck to get through because the controls wouldn't work or something like that the concept is good and i think if they just like leaned into it more like they could actually be moderately successful and i also think like this works better with animation as opposed to live action Though, to be fair, I, I never actually experienced Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Well, that's the one that everyone was just like, man, the input things do not work. <laughs> I didn't like necessarily have any problems just doing this straight from my laptop. So that's kind of a plus. At least like the actual gameplay was simple enough. 
Yeah, you have to keep these things simple. You cannot do anything more complicated than what it is. So if you want to try out something different, I'd give it a watch. And Well, <laughs> I'd say give it a watch, but you won't be able to really watch it until you're just like left and right know exactly what the questions and the answers are and what have you. But that being said, just like as a piece of entertainment, I can definitely recommend this if you're into classic animation then you should definitely check this out at least once and if you are a completionist then have fun going through all the different endings it might be only 15 minutes long if you know what you're doing but it's they have like 90 minutes of total animation so and they do change it up enough so you shouldn't be too bored by it, per se. Since we're on the, you know, the discussion of old school animation, I guess it's time to go down to the Inkwell Isles, which is about 29 miles or, away or so. <laughs> we're talking about the Cuphead show. And by the way, that number 29 is, that's kind of a funny story because that was the year in 1929 when Bosco, the Talk Ink Kid, made his first appearance. This whole show, before you even get started into it, is so clever with its dialogue at points and its love and references to old animation. You can even see some of the Fleischer characters in the background if you look careful enough. Oh, yeah. They actually got approval to do that, which makes a lot of sense. You won't be seeing Steamboat Willie or... I don't think you'll be able to see Felix the Cat yet. But you'll uh, see a few very old school characters if you know what you're looking for. First of all, for those who don't know, this is produced by uh, King Features Syndicate, which was the company that published the old Popeye comics. That's already another cool little piece of history that's attached to the show. But the Cuphead show follows the misadventures of the impulsive Cuphead and his cautious brother, Mugman. This is, of course, based on the 2017 video game by Studio MDHR. Let's rip the Band-Aid off now. On a scale from 1 to 10, how much should fans be comparing this to the video game? In my opinion, they should. Yes, without the video game, this show wouldn't exist. But I think it's best to just review this on its own merits. I mean, let's get one fact straight. The story in the game was not that complicated there was no real world building and lore given to it but that's because it was more just about making a cool running gun boss rush game with this cool rubber hose animation style that definitely has some baggage connected to it but we'll talk about that when we talk about the overall visual presentation so turning it into like a wacky Mary Melodies, Looney Tunes style cartoon was probably the best thing they could have done. To be fair, it does pseudo follow the plot of Cuphead and Mugman come across the devil and of course make lifetime enemies with the devil. <laughs> and while the show is not story focused, the devil will be like coming back every once in a while to cause some shenanigans. And 
there are some story beats that do come back, but it's only like for one episode until we get to the ending, but we'll get to that in a second. So to answer your question in a very roundabout way, don't go into this thinking it's going to be just like the video game. If you like the new Looney Tunes or the new Mickey Mouse shorts that are getting made, this is that kind of show for you. This is basically cut from the same cloth as those two, which is a, a very nice piece of cloth. I love the voice cast in this. They got some top-notch talent for this. Yeah, they got, well, we've, and we've talked about this before, but I'll go through them quickly. Cuphead is voiced by True Valentino, and Mugman is voiced by Frank Totoro. Elder Kettle is voiced by Joe Hanna, probably one of my favorite performances of the show. And you will see Miss Chalice, who is, of course, voiced by the ever-great Gray Griffin. King Dice, the devil's right hand, or as far as he thinks he's the devil's right hand, is voiced by Wayne Brady. Then we have a slew of just other actors that are there, like Dave Wasson, who helped adapt the show to Netflix, shows up a couple times. He's the old telephone character. He's henchman. Then we also have Christina Melizia, who's the uh, baby bottle. Probably one of the surprise characters that I wasn't expecting to love so much. That one episode is hilarious, by the way. Well, a lot of this show is very funny. Cosmo Sergerson is a uh, elephant character. Then we have the, uh, the two frogs, Ribby and Croak, who are voiced by Chris Wilde and Rick Zief. And one of our favorite voice actors, Keith Ferguson, has his small cameo as Bold Boy. And then Cosmo Sergerson also voices the, uh, the shopkeep from the game and the individual who is helping out this, this unknown person that the show is like hiding the identity of, Pork Rind. And I know who the, in, the person in question he's helping is but I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't played the game. Then, but that's really it. Then there's like Candy Milo who shows up as the two tomatoes, cherry and brandy wine, which are actual tomato f- types. And uh, Gary Anthony Williams shows up. He's Quadratus, the individual from the well, which is, I love how he like, the moment he stops rhyming, he's just like, eh, it gets tiring. <laughs> I know some people get kind of get mad at that. What? because of the whole like well if you're not going to do it then don't put the effort into it or whatever and it's just like no have you tried to talk in rhyme it's a pain and then andrew morgato shows up from time to time he's like the stickler character from one of the other episodes but it's really just like the same five or so people like jim conroy shows up and he was in a i think he was in jellystone yeah he's uh huckleberry hound and captain caveman from Jellystone. I think for like, if you're looking for representation from the game, you do see Easter eggs from all over the place of like either characters or minions or something that you'd see in the background. But in terms of like the bosses, they have yet to be fully shown or like, you don't know which ones they're going to play with. Like, the ones that they do put front and center is Sal, Chauncey, and Ollie, the uh, the potato, the carrot, and the onion that are one of the first bosses you encounter in the, in the game. Oh. How prominent in the game is uh, the devil? 
the devil is basically the thing that ignites the plot, and then you see him at the end. But you have to go through a gauntlet that was run by uh, King Dice. And then Chalice was mostly a side character who was in charge of these uh, challenge maps that you could complete. But, But she's definitely given a little more character here within the show. And like I said, Gray Griffin is great as her. When I saw the design, and before this is before I could pick up that's who she was, it's like, is that going to be Gray Griffin? And I caught it. <laughs> but I also like uh, Dave Lawson as henchman, the one who helps out the devil himself. He's, he's such a delightfully like, do, like doofy little character, and I love the design. And But outside of probably the obvious character that we're going to talk about. Do you have like a favorite performance or a favorite character? A couple of mine. Wayne Brady as King Dice, I think is just perfect. He, he brings a lot of charisma to, to his performance. And it's just cool to have someone of his caliber in the show, even if it is just for one episode. But outside of him, I think my favorites are Chris Wilde and Rick Seif as Ribby and Croaks. I like Pork Rind. And I think outside of Cuphead and Mugman, Elder Kettle is probably one of my favorite characters. Oh, Elder Kettle has a very funny episode later on in the first 12 episodes or so. And I love the, the episode where they are introduced to King Dice. And at the, like the whole uh, episode has this thing where King Dice is like, has his game show. And he is of course using it as a front to give the devil's souls. Then, of course, like Cuphead and Mugman get on there. Well, not against their will, but it's just like, oh, we're here. Might as well take part in the game. And one of the questions King Dice asks is like, now, can you name this song? And then it plays and it's, you know, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. (laughs) But Cuphead, of course, gets it wrong. But then you see Elder Kettle listening on the radio and he just gets like meltdown mad. It's like, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Car. And it's like he's about to like destroy the radio, but then at the end of the episode, he slams the door open and he look, points at Cuphead and he's just like, it's Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. <laughs> just the fact that they kept that gag going is very funny. And then, of course, his the one episode that he gets basically top billing for is very funny. I, granted, it's on the whole misunderstanding uh, trope, of storytelling but the way they execute it is kind of perfect normally i'm not a big fan of like the misunderstanding but when it's used to a comedic effect i think that's when it works a lot better but i guess we kind of have to talk about the one character that has pretty much stolen the show the devil voiced by luke millington drake and apparently this was luke's first voice acting gig man he picked a fun character to be <laughs> and they do keep a lot of the devils more shape-shifting and animated elements like in the show but they keep it like pseudo limited to just more like wild expressions and i love how gleeful he is about being evil because he's a devil why mm-hmm. not it's he's not going to be tortured about like should I be torturing these souls or not? Of course he is. He loves it. That's his whole thing. <laughs> Basically, anytime he can try to get more souls, he's going to take it. I love the uh, the first episode at the carnival. And 
Mugman is just like, huh, carnival, con, evil, evil. <laughs> the devil is just like, when he shows up behind him, and he's just like, waves his fingers at them. He's just like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, when he's in the bath and he's c- talking to King Dice, and King Dice is like, hey, devil, it's your number one man, King Dice. Who? Uh, King Dice? Your, your number one guy and you see like the disappointment on king dice the animation on him is actually really good like i love his expressions like on both the devil and king dice during that one phone call sequence i have to assume that the animation team just had like the time of their lives bringing the devil to life because i honestly think like his design is probably my favorite next to croak and ribbit yeah oh yeah croak and ribbit are a fun antagonistic force from one episode where they're basically Chicago Mafia men. Like I said, the talent's great. Now, I guess let's talk about the anime. This isn't a very story-driven show, so I think let's just move on to the animation side of things because this is also where a lot of people had contingency with how it was being adapted because, once again, I mean, the game was based around this smooth, crisp, like hand-drawn animation of the 30s and what have you. Unfortunately, due to the time period and how the animation industry has ran in the U.S., that's not possible. (laughs) No, not even in the slightest. Especially on a budget and time frame that most shows are given. Considering how good like shows look from like Mercury Filmworks or whatever studio gets assigned these projects. The fact that they did their best and got pretty accurate translations of the characters from the game to look as good as they do, that's good. But a lot of people are going to be upset about that because it's not, again, the pure 2D animation scene in the game. Which, uh, another reminder, before Microsoft came in to pretty much save this game from basically never coming out or coming out in a more timely manner the developers had to remortgage their house to fund the game they're lucky that this game was a huge hit (laughs) because that's a huge risk because doing the pure like hand-drawn cell-by-cell animation is time-consuming and costly yeah and didn't the game take like at least seven years to actually get off the ground it took forever like it was announced maybe way back in like 2012 and then it just it didn't come out until 2017 and that's just listen i know everyone wants pure traditional 2d to come back but until studios networks streaming services or what have you give those teams the technology the time and the money to make that a thing that's not going to happen and it's not even like a money thing because well netflix and wb spent so much money on that green eggs and ham show and it was all 2d and i know a lot of people will be like really and it's like yeah a lot of that was hand-drawn 2d animation i know the digital coloring kind of hides that fact but that's what happens 
<laughs> I think this show looks good. Yeah, do some parts show the more digital techniques? Yes. But then there are times where the show actually does go out of its way to try to do the multi-layer thing from like old Disney and sh- uh, shorts. Mm-hmm. The sort of like 3D effects yeah. of the show, they, those really remind me of, of like the Fleischer cartoons from the 30s, how they had those like, those like multiple layers, just like Cat Burglar. They also go the extra mile to include, you know, the kind of grainy aspects of classic film. And then, of course, each episode begins with like, you know, those old style uh, title sequences. While this doesn't look 100% like the video game, they still went the distance to pay homage to the golden age of animation. Now, what do you think about them going the route of making a more serialized cartoon where it's basically one and done stories? I like this approach. It is kind of like mixing different eras of storytelling. You wouldn't necessarily see like multi-part Bugs Bunny shorts unless you count the three different versions of like the tortoise and the hare. Even to a lesser extent, the hunting trilogy from Chuck Jones. It's kind of cool to see maybe not like a fully fleshed out narrative like like most modern cartoons, but you know, there's a little bit of uh, continuity between these episodes. There is a two-parter involving an invisible sweater. One episode's called Sweater Off Dead. And then the next one is Sweater Luck Next Time. Oh, the pun game was strong with this show. And those are probably my favorite episodes of the bunch. Oh, and by the way, you do see the three-headed dragon um, from the game at the very end of that uh Mug Man the Brave episode. That's the uh, the punchline to the whole thing. of like, oh, they they were brave and got an egg because they entirely misunderstood what pork rind wanted. <laughs> and he's like, well, wait a minute, what is this then? And then the the dragon comes in and just burns down his whole establishment. And it's just like, I really hate them cups. <laughs> Now, a lot of people might complain about the whole fact that, yes, the show is using rubber hose animation of like the Fleischer era and whatnot for its visuals. And I'm going to cut everyone off from who are just like, well, it's not pure rubber hose animation. Let's get this out of the way again, because we have to kind of start keep bringing this up because people don't get it. A lot of that rubber hose animation back in the day, the designs and just the movements and what have you, a lot of it has a lot of racist origins. Literally had to go out of its way to not reignite those elements that are extremely racist. Like the show looks great as it is, but I like that they made sure they wouldn't fall into any pit traps because that's a really easy thing to do with trying to do that rubber hose animation where it's just like oh no they adapted the worst part (laughs) that kind of thing at least like here they're they've taken the spirit of those classic shorts but it's definitely painted with with sort of rose tinted glasses where for those who maybe are not aware of racism in the classic shorts this kind of avoids that controversy but they have the spirit down without any of the problematic elements. 
Exactly. That's what they needed to do. That's what everyone needs to do before they uh, go like, oh, hey, look at this game. Oh, whoops. This all looks racist. (laughs) Now, what do you think about the show ending on a cliffhanger? It makes me upset that there isn't a second season right now. From a storytelling perspective, I like the cliffhanger. It's just emotionally, I'm not a big fan of cliffhangers that don't get resolved. But since I know we're getting more episodes, there are like 48 total. We know there's going to be a resolution. Right. And hopefully those, the people who make these 48 shorts are getting paid well and are getting what they earn and deserve. You know, hashtag new deal for animation. Because let's just say Netflix has found a way to be uh, to work around contracts. Mm. <laughs> Which can be yeah. very frustrating for those who want to actually live off their work. Yeah, so... Hopefully that's the case because I did like the show and I did love how good, like committed they were to the world and of Cuphead and the style because like, you know, that sequence when they're in the graveyard and they're mm-hmm. walking through and they're, of course, trying not to be scared and afraid where they're just like, man, this is a nice place. Yeah, it's really swell. And then they start walking faster as the sun goes down and then they just like go to like a full front jog we're just like like this place is great yeah i never want to leave <laughs> we'll buy a house here <laughs> stay during the summer <laughs> they actually do that multi-layer effect and it looks amazing it reminds me of that uh sinbad the sailor short from popeye mm. because there's that one sequence that everyone likes talking about where you see popeye who's animated in 2d but has like this multi-layered stop motion background environment which looks really interesting by today's standards and i think overall i really liked this show and i can't wait to watch more and i want to see if they actually start telling a story or if they keep going by serialized story beats because these episodes aren't very long they're 14 to 16 minutes which i think is a perfect length because the world of Cuphead doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you look past the homage to old cartoons. Yeah, like each of these episodes is about like double the length of a typical animated short, which is anywhere between like six and eight minutes. They are like kind of sneaking in like an ongoing narrative. Mostly the intention behind the show is just paying homage to the golden age of animation, which is fine. I will be there for, I will continue to watch this show with each new season. Whether or not this like becomes something more story heavy, it all depends on uh, the execution. Right, right. I mean, that's all we can see. We'll have to see when they release these next batch of episodes. And I hope it's pseudo soon but i wouldn't mind waiting for a while for these next couple of batches because i'd rather wait and give the teams and people working on these shows and films and what have you the time they need oh sure then saying like i want more now which i'm sorry like i know people are really excited that jujitsu kaisen's getting another season which is great but the fact that they're all getting mad 
it's going to be a year from now when we get a new season. And it's just like, well, <laughs> I, y'all have to either pick one or the other. They either rush out to make more or they take their time. And assuming like kind of know how Netflix works, they probably got a lot of these episodes done in batches, kind of like with the Looney Tunes shorts and I'm sure we'll see them soon, like at at least in the next few months. Oh, yeah. Like we'll probably see what they're going to call season two in like July or August. Yeah. And hopefully that's the case. Now we move on to some anime. (laughs) But it's time to talk about one of the new films of the year, which does it feel like we're just kind of like in a dry spot with animated films or just like how distant each one is released from the next one. It does feel like that a little bit. Like I know it's, it was only like a few weeks before we like between seeing a bit of harmony and the house. And then we got a child of Kamiari month, which is what we're about to talk about. Yep. But the Uh, fact that like, March only really has turning red. And then we have to wait until April for the next batch of films. Well, for now, it's April. Everyone's basically locked down that of what they're going to be releasing in March. So, and I think not a lot of people want to deal with uh, turning red. <laughs> mm. But yeah, let's talk about Child of Kamiyari Month. This was, once again, a film funded through crowdfunding. Was going to get released in 2020, but then got pushed to 2021. And then Netflix picked up the overseas rights and released it a few weeks ago in February. Well, at the beginning of February. It's directed by Takana Shirai. It's written by Tetsuro Takita, Ryuta Miyake, and Toshinari Shinoe. And it's produced by Leiden Films, the same studio that did Tribe Nine and Salaryman's Club. So let's talk about the plot a little. It's about this young girl named Kana Hayama, who's uh, dubbed by Mia Sinclair Janesse. And she's, well, kind of struggling to find peace and closure and just kind of like, why should I do anything? in life after she uh, lost her mom and during a marathon she almost makes it to the finish line but then stops and has a panic attack and then of course runs off to ignite the, the story and this little trinket that she has that was her mom's glows and activates its magical power basically freezing time around her and she encounters a Oni boy named uh, Yasha, voiced by Mark Allen Jr., and a spirit in the form of one of the bunnies Kana liked taking care of, Shiro, voiced by Lucy uh, Christian. Basically, the Shiro tells her that it's like, hey, y'all, you got to do this thing that your mom did. And that's basically get all these gifts from spirits for the gods for Kamiari month which means I think like month of gods. Then it's just like her like going like, okay, 
and then dealing with Yasha, who wants to take the item and reclaim his family's banished title from of being among the gods and such. And what something else that may be building up. And now, what did you think about this movie overall before we dive into it a little? Overall, I really enjoyed it, but I'd be lying if I said it didn't get off to kind of a slow start at first. It takes about like 20, 25 minutes for the plot to really get going. Once it does, it it really starts to grow on you. I think what's kind of funny about this movie is that like time is of the essence, even though they basically stopped time. But but it takes so long because they keep asking questions and it's just a ton of exposition between Shiro and Kana. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, oh my gosh, please start the plot. And part of me like kind of wondered if this was to save animation to just kind of upload a ton of the exposition at first as much as possible. Like, so they didn't have to leave. They could, they didn't need to draw new backgrounds and they didn't have to really animate the characters despite this being a theatrical film. That's the thing. Maybe it's just because I watched it on my monitor, but this didn't really feel cinematic to the extent of like other anime films we've seen from like Studio 4C or, or Wit Studios or some of those bigger names. That doesn't necessarily mean it was bad. And towards the end, we do get a little bit more flair with the animation. But right. I, I, I'm going to be honest, uh, Salaryman's Club looks better than this. I think Light in Films was maybe stretched a little thin. Mm. If that makes sense. Like, because the anime industry is already in such a dire strait of just losing people to... Uh, other countries that are willing to pay more and better and the animation industry is just like hey we want to get all these anime made and some studios like cloverworks that we talked about in our two big anime recaps for the winter season were stretched maybe way too thin for their own good like because like cloverworks was making three shows light and film was making two shows and who knows when, like, the production of all of this was happening? Because it's safe to assume something like OLM has, like, one team that makes all the Pokemon stuff and then another team for everything else. Because otherwise, how do they make all the Pokemon stuff on top of Odd Taxi, Comey Can't Communicate, and what have you? It's impossible for one studio to take on such a heavy workload. I mean, I've talked about this before. That's why Studio Wit did not make the last two parts of Attack on Titan because the production committee was just like, we want it right here, right now. And Wit Studios was just like, hey, we're busy with everything else that we're working on. Go find someone else or chill out. And then, of course, the production committee was like, I don't like that they yelled at us. (laughs) So we're going to go over to MAPPA and MAPPA is already overworked like hell. <laughs> but of course they took it. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's probably the one slight downside to this film is that it doesn't feel as 
polished in the animation department. It looks like a slightly more polished anime series until they reach a few parts where it feels like, okay, this is where the animation went and you can understand why. Like when they encounter the dragon god who's Mm -hmm. voiced by Michael Sorek and how it has that cool ink painting look. There's nothing wrong with this film like being much smaller in scale because it's about arcana dealing with grief getting over loss it's a coming of age story that's the same with like yasha yasha wants to get over the grief that was brought upon his family and he's just like i want to be up there with the gods again and then Koroshiro is just there to be the exposition bunny (laughs) basically (laughs) now you would think like okay so they're just going to different temples and such What's so thrilling about that? I mean, it leads to a few cute gags with Kana encountering the spirits and then being like, oh, look at this giant cow. Oh, that's kind of cute. Oh my gosh, it like just barfed up a huge thing of hay. <laughs> and then, of course, they take that little uh, gourd thing and just shove everything in there because magic, don't ask. You kind of have to do that throughout each of these stops. Throughout the whole film, though, Kana is dealing with her grief in a very uh, toxic way. So it's kind of building up and it's like taking the form of these uh, evil spirits that like feed off of grief and pain to uh, basically wreck their day. <laughs> basically and that's really the thing that's happening it's a ticking time clock between Kana getting the job done and seeing how she handles the situation of these demons that really start at the very beginning for her and I mean it's a very compelling story it's a very low-key story so I don't think it's this film's fault that it happened to come out after like words that bubble up like soda pop or bell (laughs) i'm sorry that it came out after that because now the people are going to be like well why doesn't it feel as big as those films and it's like well it's doing its own thing and it's fine that it's yet another dealing with grief story japan seems to have a lot of those which is fine because more often than not like these actually turn out to be pretty compelling and there is something relatable to Kana's struggle even without the grief aspect just like the idea of getting your spark back for your passion after something traumatic happens I'm sure that's something we've all gone through to be clear this stuff doesn't bother me as much where it's like oh it's another coming of age story what matters is the execution and This one did it well, because at first I remember watching this movie and I was just like, I don't know. I wasn't fully feeling it. And I think that was just that first part was just, oh gosh, it it was so long. (laughs) But then it's just like, it started to grow on me. It started to hit its beats and it was a lot of fun. Now, yeah, granted, some of the characters don't get a lot of development because they're just basically there to either be like the best friend, the dad who is very just like, okay, I'm just going to be in the background, bye. He was kind of a a nothing character. He needed to be there to fulfill his role, but compare him to Yasha, who is just kind of bursting with personality and actually turns out to be one of my favorite characters towards the end of the film. 
Right. Despite him being like kind of antagonistic towards the beginning. When he and Shiro are introduced in the film, that's when the momentum starts to get going. There are like a lot of fun moments with the film, like when at the beginning when Kana wakes up from her daydreaming, the teacher who is voiced by Damon Mills is just like, well, my, t- my classes aren't that boring, are they? <laughs> and- she just says, yeah, yeah, no, they kind of are. The rest of the voice cast is also pretty good. You'll hear uh, Keith Silverstein as Abisu, and then the Okuni Nushi is voiced by Kirk Thornton, who, you know, big, longtime voice actor. Kira Buckland, Madeline Morris, and Rachel Slotkey, and Kaylee McKee, and Emily Bauer, and Don M. Bennett are in this movie as minor characters and additional voices and such. Like, it's a really solid movie. I think if you just let it sit with you for a bit and you take in its story of just, like, getting over grief and reclaiming that spark of motivation to your life, I think you'll find this film to be pretty charming. It's unfortunate that this is going to be coming out during the same time year as in you all and other films. So it's just like, oh, I feel bad for it. But I think people will like this film if they give it a chance. I can see people like latching on to this one if they just like stumble upon it on a whim. I hope people do because, you know, despite not getting off on the best foot, it is a really charming film and it it does end on a very positive note. So yeah, this is one I can very comfortably recommend. Right, right. Now let's move on to something that we forgot to talk about in January because we kind of thought they were releasing this as a two-part thing, like between two weeks. But it was released as one six-episode miniseries called The Orbital Children, which this, I guess, project had a lot of confusion from it because of how it was released in Japan and in the U.S. Because in Japan, it was released as a double feature, like two 90-minute movies. And then when Netflix bought the rights and released it here in the States, they released it as a six-episode limited series, Mm -hmm. which is really confusing because we thought like, oh, so we'll just talk about this when it comes out and then it's just like netflix is like nah man you're getting this thing in one day boom (laughs) apologies for not talking about this one sooner but you know anime (laughs) and january was pretty packed yeah but now we're talking about it so in 2045 a disaster strikes a newly opened japanese commercial space station in geocentric orbit when that happens three gifted children are on a sponsored visit to the station as a promotional event. The station also houses the last two children born in a troubled colony on the moon. The pair, accustomed to low gravity, are undergoing physical therapy with the aim to, of immigrating to Earth. Of course, when all the kids get there, shenanigans ensue. They're all stuck on that space station along with the few adults that are there. And they must get off. It's like a lighter weight Japan sinks. <laughs> it's a disaster drama, I guess per se, with a 
a sci-fi space adventure angle to it. You know, Japan Sinks is actually a really good point of reference for this because while this while this has a little bit more levity to it, there is still plenty of gravity to the fates of all these children, specifically our two um, moon children, Toya and Konoha. At first, when I was watching the first episode of, of this mini series, I was a little confused about exactly what was going on because they just dump a bunch of details onto you at once. It's like, here's his kid. He's in this thing. He can hack his hand or something. It's like, oh, he's got an implant. Oh, well, okay. Oh, it's taking place in space? Oh, okay. To me, I got a little confused. And then, like, of course, as the episode went on and then the second episode happened, it's like, oh, okay. I like this now. (laughs) Are you glad you watched this as a series as opposed to what I'm sure the original plan was? Not necessarily making it a double feature, but I think at one point it was just going to be a single film. I'm glad they actually gave this story room to breathe because otherwise there's a lot that happens and to condense this to like 90 to 120 minutes would be probably a little too much. I think it was smart to turn this one into a six episode series. I know not apparently this reignited debate about like, do not turn your story into a 10 episode series. Just tell a movie or do a six episode series and that's it. And we don't have time to get into that. We got too much animation to talk about. And there's definitely like a lot of interesting history about this because it was supposed to be a film and then Signal MD, the same studio that I think did words that bubble up like soda pop, were going to do the animation, but then it was uh, made by a new studio, Production Plus H, which was founded by Fuminori Honda, who was an ex-production IG and ex-Signal MD producer and because well Signal MD is actually very well known because we've watched a lot of their stuff they worked on like Mars Red Dragon Goes House Hunting unfortunately Platinum End did uh, words bubble up like Soda Pop and Napping Princess but I like that it's a new studio it's just like hey I'm gonna make my own studio and we're gonna show off what we can do And this has a ton of well-known people working on it. Mitsuo Iso worked on a uh, anime that was like a huge fan favorite back in the day. And was also like an animator, like a key animator for stuff like Gundam 0080. And he did a lot of Asuka's battle stuff in the end of Evangelion. And then of course, a lot of the tank battle from the original iconic Ghost in the Shell. Not the live action one, the animated one. Like, I thought this was a pretty rock solid story with like about these children dealing with, well, death, the unknown, fate, and the future. And then, of course, all the little side commentary beats of like corporations and the things that they get into. Because it's interesting how they build up like the, the ticking time clock outside of just trying to get off the space station that Toya and Konoha have these uh, implants in them. And apparently due to faulty manufacturing, the implants were killing people that were part of this colony on the moon. They were the last ones there. And you just don't know if that those uh, implants are going to 
killed him or not. Mm-hmm. That sort of ticking time bomb aspect of of the story was very compelling. It's funny how this show kind of it introduces a lot of very heady themes of like fate, a little bit of religion. It definitely at least touches on politics with like, you know, a second UN and John Doe is clearly like a riff on, you know, the group Anonymous. There's a lot of commentary in this show and they even kind of mentioned like a pandemic at one point. Oh gosh, yeah. It's a lot to take in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like I said, it's like the AI is just like, we know what's going to happen in the future. And of course, just like a lot of anime that deal with this, like, we know a preset destiny and future. And it's just like, no, you can't decide my future. I'm the only one who can do that. And it's like, okay. (laughs) I mean, not to dig at this show or anything like that. It's a really like good story. And I like that the character's, come off as actual kids yeah and, yeah. Te- and like slight and like i guess middle school is how old so- some of them are it seems like it i kind of assume that they're somewhere between like 14 and 17 i guess insert the uh, pros ed uh guessing an anime character's real age video here <laughs> because like one of them is an influencer who uh toya Konoha, Tayo, Mina are 14 years old. Hiroshi, Mina's brother, is 12 years old. The oldest ones are, of course, the uh, the adults. And then NASA, who is uh, 21 years old. I love how her name is NASA Houston. She apparently is not even a real name, but that is kind of a funny jab at uh, the actual NASA. Uh, it's very funny with... Uh, kennedy where he was just like it's like i can't believe it was someone such a cool name wants to cause destruction with space and nasa's just like that's not my real name we don't give out our real names <laughs> i like that the characters is they they do keep them fairly consistent but they do have them grow because like toya doesn't like people from earth because of how he's just lived up here and had this real dangerous mindset of just like you know well it's a very scrooge mindset a lot of people should die so we can stop the surplus population and it's like jesus kid (laughs) and of course he sees his ways like he realizes that he's wrong and what have you but still (laughs) kind of a dark thing for a 14 year old to think about oh yeah well even wikipedia labels him edgelord And I liked the idea of, oh, what's his name? An Shin-kun, the mascot character. Oh, yeah, the chief. The, the chief, which was, I, I have some kind of issues with how he's handled. Like, I don't think the dementia joke is funny because it only comes up once. And I'm just for personal reasons, I don't like them making light of that kind of thing. But then it's just like, he helps out for a good first half of the show and then kind of disappears in the second half. Well, he stays in the background and he doesn't really do a whole lot. And I think that's kind of my one issue is that sometimes the characters aren't like, I don't think they have the most interesting arcs 
in this story. Like, I think the themes and then the commentary was given more time, gestate, and boil over than the actual characters. The fact that these characters are familiar is not, like, an actual bad thing. It's just... you They don't get the most satisfying arcs. I think all the characters are generally likable. I think this project is... It's more thematically rich. Yeah. Which that happens a lot of times. There's nothing wrong with that. Just to make sure, like, to be clear. I do think this, like, whether this was going to be a film, like two films or one film or a TV series, originally, the animation actually does look great. It does have that film polish. And sometimes I kind of spotted moments where it's like, Man, this is uh this kind of looks like Ghibli and such. Well, a lot of the people that actually worked on this film were Ghibli animators. Of course they were. Yeah, so uh and I thought that was very interesting because it's like just how like how uh what what are the names? Toya and uh and Tayo, who works for UN2 at age 14. Uh, I, I blame nepotism. <laughs> Too many uh, take your child to work days. Yeah, yeah. Just like how they were running at during one sequence to, to get out of there alive. It's like, oh, that's a very Ghibli style run right there and what have you. And there, it also reminds you of this one animated film that I always recommend to people. Uh, Welcome to the Space Show kind of has that vibe for me also i i don't know if you can watch that film anywhere but it's it's a really rock solid sci-fi adventure starring kids i guess let's talk a little bit about spoilers what did you think about the second to last episode twist of nasa being a john doe member there was maybe one moment before the reveal that kind of tipped me off when she was showing Kanoha the excerpts of the uh, the seven poem. As for the reveal itself, I didn't fully see it coming. I thought they handled it pretty well. Maybe it could have used a little bit more time to flesh out, let the audience kind of sit with that reveal. But ultimately, I thought everything from her reveal to her eventual sacrifice was well handled. The voice cast is also pretty good. I mean, like the they got like Griffin Burns, Cassandra Lee Morris, Adam MacArthur, Tara Sands, Colleen o, uh, Sean Nessie, who, uh, by the way, if Hiroshi sounds familiar, that is because Colleen is also the voice of Tails and the more modern Sonic stuff. Mm-hmm. And I picked that up instantly. And I was thinking like, oh, is Mina voiced by like the same person who voices Amy Rose? And unfortunately, it's not. But <laughs> it's like, we could have had a semi-Sonic reunion. Tara Sands does actually, like, we would actually know her from uh, Shaman King as Anna. And then if, because we're going to watch Jujutsu Kaisen and such for, you know, the new movie and su- what have you, you'll see her pop up there also. Were you, like, did you feel overall satisfied with how the story was told and, like, how... It's just like the AI and this comment want to learn all about humanity. And like, that means learning the good and the bad, the fake news and all that stuff. Like, did you think it was overall handled well? Yeah, I'd say so. 
you know what this kind of reminds me of? It reminds me a little bit of how um, Mamoru Hosoda kind of views the internet in a way, only this is a little bit more focused on like humanity as a whole. I really like the, the, like the ending, how it's very pro-human race. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. It, because of course, like that was the big thing that John Doe wanted a huge comet to hit Earth to wipe out part of the population. And it's just like, no, let's not try to do that and just find a better alternative. It's always like one of those situations where it's like, maybe let's do this. And then someone takes it into a wildly different direction. And it's just like, okay, uh, <laughs> you didn't need to go that hard. <laughs> yeah. And the best part is like, they still end up with the same result of like, what's the number? Like 36 point something percent of humanity eventually takes to the skies and leaves planet earth it's like the exact same amount of people that would have been killed by the comet yeah it definitely is a very more optimistic nod it's like the star trek thing of just like we will colonize other planets and the moon to make sure the human race is still around now what happens in the future after the (laughs) the limited series well that's uh for you to decide because <laughs> I know there's all this talk about right now to like we're gonna colonize Mars. And it's just like good luck with that. I don't think we're ready for that just yet. No matter how many times Elon says we can do it, it's not ready yet. <laughs> and he's being worthless as usual. <laughs> but anyway, I liked the orbital children. I thought it was a very a big surprise because I didn't exactly know how to feel about it at first. But I liked the character dynamics. The children characters were well-written. It was fun. It had some great animation. I, I think one of my favorite moments was just the whole reveal of the chief. And the, the dolls is like, to show yourself. And just like how the zipper comes off that giant bunny thing is so creepy. Oh, I yeah. Think I think that's the point because you see them like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, this is scary. Oh, wait a minute. You're just an old man in a suit. (laughs) (laughs) And I liked all the different astronaut outfits that they had. It's a visually deep and a complex miniseries that if you're a fan of stuff like The Silent Sea on Netflix, I think you would like this one if you are don't mind animation and such. Like even if like I like animation and I'm always kind of like worried about what I'm about to jump into with new stuff because, you know, it's new and it's the unknown. But I'm always excited when I come out of an experience feeling pretty positive about it. I feel the same way. Like, it's become abundantly clear since this podcast launched that animation is my favorite medium. So naturally, I will want to check out as much new stuff as possible. But for this show in particular, I can just straight up recommend this to just people who love science fiction who have always dreamed of going into outer space people who just want like a really compelling dramatic narrative and if you're fans of the anime series uh deno coil which is done by the same director and such i think you'll like orbital children let's move on from netflix we were there for quite a while to amazon because of their first major animated series for the year 
which is the legend of Vox Machina. The backstory of this, it is very interesting. First of all, this is an animated series produced by Critical Role Productions and Type Mouse Incorporated. So, of course, like if you know anything about the famous Critical Role series of very uh, multi-hour long Pathfinder, Dungeons and Dragons style stuff, uh, web series. A while back, they started a Kickstarter to fund an animated series, which, well, they <laughs> they succeeded. Well, saying that they succeeded would be a uh, an understatement. Yeah, because they became like one of the highest grossing things on Kickstarter. And then, of course, as they were getting that done, sure, Amazon was just like, you know what, we need content. Let's just fund these guys because we have all the money in the world. And we'll make it a exclusive streaming series for us. Now, would you like to go over the plot, Mike? The series is set in Exandria, a fictional world created by Matthew Mercer in 2012 for his personal Dungeons & Dragons campaign, which was then launched into the Critical Role series. Most of the story takes place on the continent of uh, Tal'Darai, and we follow our heroes. You know, their party is Vox Machina. We have Laura Bailey as Vexalia Vex Vessar. She is the half-elf ranger and the archer of the group. My favorite character, Taliesin Jaffe as uh, Percival Percy Fredrickson. Von Musel Klasowski de Rolo III. He is a gunslinger. Uh, before you continue on, this person, ne- Percy needs a shorter name. He needs to go <laughs> see that guy from life with an ordinary guy who reincarnated as a total fantasy knockout. Because it's just like, that's the whole gag in that show. There's a character who has like a super long name and they're just like, why the hell is your name so long? <laughs> yeah, his name is, is a mouthful. Just call him Percy. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We've got Ashley Johnson, who voices uh, Tulip in Infinity Train, as uh, Pike Trickfoot. The cleric of the group. Yep. A gnome cleric. Uh, Liam O'Brien is Vax Vessar, um, who is the twin brother to Vex, who is a half-elf rogue. Marisha Ray voices Kaylee of the Air Asari, uh, who is a half-elf druid. Sam Regal, who is Scanlan uh, Shorthalt, a gnome bard. Then probably my favorite character, Travis Willingham as Grog Strongjaw, a Goliath barbarian. Essentially, like the whole thing is they're the screw-ups. They're the black sheep of the guilds of that world. And they just cause nothing but violence because they get too drunk and get into bar fights. And then, of course, Scanlan can't think without his head between his legs, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, what happens is they find out that there, there's this creature that is causing chaos all over the land. And in a very funny way, I thought it was like a clever bit of storytelling where you think like, oh, this is the hero's party from old. And then they just get brutally slaughtered (laughs) at the beginning. And then of course they're like, the kingdom is just like, what the hell are we going to do? We keep losing people to this creature. But then of course, after another night of drinking and cutting hands off and getting into fights and in beds, you know, if you know what I mean. They find out that the kingdom is looking for a guild to take down this 
force of unknown origin. And then, of course, that's how things start. <laughs> and, of course, everything gets better. And, like, more, there are more mysteries. There are, are storylines weave throughout of all some of the, the characters. And so what did you think about this, Mike? Because this is, like, one of their non-The Boys related stuff or Robert Kirkman related stuff for the streaming service with their, you know, th- this is coming out the same time as uh, apparently we're getting that Lord of the Rings series later this year. Not knowing too much about critical role and just kind of taking this in uh, just on its own. I really like this. I may have like a few complaints about maybe one too many instances of like maybe a little bit too much swearing sometimes the cgi animation gets a little janky but like the story itself and just the way the series really kind of captures the spirit of your typical D campaign it just worked on the whole yeah i'm sure there are moments and elements to the show itself that are that hit harder if you are in the actual critical role series which there's nothing wrong with that if you are it's just walking into this i was very much happy that they were they had to hit for a wider audience so they had to essentially trim down to make for a compelling season and like a consistent story for how many episodes? Was it like 12 episodes? Yeah. And I like that. I, it's easy to get into because I'm sure some people and it's mostly and its target audience have, of course, played Pathfinders or D&D. Honestly, I can't tell the difference between the two, no matter how many times my friend tells me <laughs> the difference between them. <laughs> but you don't need to watch Critical Role to enjoy this series. Just think of it as just another action adventure fantasy series. Not in the same vein as Harmon Quest, which is more based on improv, like an on-the-spot dialogue and storytelling. This one yeah. has a set story. And I was surprised when you told me that this was Titmouse. Because I was watching it and I was just like, is this either Studio Mirror or is this Powerhouse Animation? I also thought it was going to be Studio Mirror. By the way, the characters, the designs looked. It... Yeah, because they have that pseudo-pointed anime look. Mm-hmm. But they don't, but they're all, but they, they have that kind of like avatar inspiration behind them. And which, yeah, I know some people can be like, oh my gosh, can adult animated shows like find a different art style than just being studio mirror. (laughs) And it's just like, Hey, if it works, it works. And of course, you know, again, hashtag new deal for animation. Sometimes they don't get to choose Uh what their animation style looks like here. I'm, I'm glad that they were given the time to make this look good because if you didn't tell me that this was Titmouse, I would have said it looks like, again, a studio mirror production. I think that's very impressive that Titmouse was, able to pretty much do what other studios have made their uh, bread and butter in terms of like their visual look and the action and what have you. Yeah. 
there are only a few moments where where the CGI gets kind of clunky, but at no point did that like distract from the story. It was just kind of something I noticed because. And to be fair, the CGI here is used for just for stuff just like dragons and certain enemy types because, you know, it could be worse. It could be like she professed herself the wise man's pupil where the CGI is just like, <laughs> sorry, this is the best we can do under the time crunch. It's definitely better than that. It's not too different than like what how Studio Mirror handles CGI. Maybe it's not as polished as them, but considering that this is like a US-based animation studio doing all this, like kudos. Oh yeah. Now, this is something I've kind of called out about Amazon with their animation offerings because it seems like it's all really adult animation. It's got a lot of cursing, a lot of hyper-violence, Oh boy, a lot of hyperviolence. <laughs> come to think of it. And I was kind of ready for that to be like really distracting because sometimes that is distracting. If you don't handle that stuff well, it becomes like, well, now I don't care about the story because the violence is in the way. But I found myself overall pretty happy with how they handle the adult tone. I think if you watch the first episode, it could be a little rough, especially with Scanlan and his antics. And like, and some of the jokes can be a little juvenile, but I'm never going to not love Scanlan riding on the, the giant purple hand thing that he can craft. I love uh, Scanlan's hand. Yeah, but where uh, he basically gives like a giant floating middle finger to one of the bad guys. <laughs> And then, of course, the uh, some of the little petty moments, like where Vax and Scanlan were getting into fights, and they start get flipping up each other off and stuff like that. But they do tone that part down, which I'm happy about. And the show is consistently funny, and it's not, and it's never quite given to just one character. Everyone has their moments of levity, and part of that just kind of comes from the fact that these are all adults who who are sitting around a table playing role-playing games and they're all just like naturally gifted performers most of them are voice actors and others are just like (laughs) just really funny comedians that's where a lot of the energy and the charisma of these characters comes from because i and i was interested about that because you know i was a pretty big fan of harman quest but i always kind of criticized the show for when it brought on a guest and that guest never quite was good enough to bounce off of everyone else or like the flimsy story that they would base the whole episode around was not good enough to back up the obviously talented people that they had on here. It was never that big of an issue. And unlike a lot of things, this one is mostly voice cast driven in terms of its cast. There are a few big names here and there. Like Carrie Payton is uh, Sovereign Uriel Taldore. And then, then you got like David Tennant as General Krieg. And Stephen Root also appears as Professor Anders. And then now if you're curious about, oh, and uh, Stephanie Beatrice also shows up as Lady Kima of Ward. 
a mostly side character. Well, for now, side character. Yeah, I guess I should say that Tony Hale also appears as Sir Fence. But I like that it's mostly voice cast driven. Mm-hmm. Not that I like that, like, oh, like celebrities should never be in cartoons and animation stuff. And it's just like, chill, take a chill pill. It's fine if it's handled well. I was a little shocked that Matthew Mercer had more of a uh, secondary role on this show because he plays Trinket, the bear. And then, of course, he also plays one of the antagonists of the season. He's uh, Silas Briarwood. I think the only reason why like he doesn't have a large role in the series is partly because he's like the head of Critical Role. He's probably wearing more hats than the rest of the cast. That would make sense. I, and I like that he's taking more of a back seat to help with the production side of things while, you know, popping in to fill a void. That and like in the campaign itself, he was like the dungeon master. So that makes all the sense then. Yeah. Now, like, what did you think about the characters of this show? I quite liked them, despite maybe like not the best first impressions uh from the first episode but i very much enjoyed them now granted during the first 12 episodes i think they all get pretty good development though you can tell some of them got more of it than others yeah like for example the biggest arc of this season is percy who percy gets the most development because he is directly connected to the antagonists so we learn more about his backstory and the whole deal with his weapon, the pepper box, and the reveal that he's been like consumed by this evil demon who's like driven by vengeance. That's all very compelling and actually kind of different compared to like your typical guild adventure kind of series. I, I will say, it, I forgot that Gunslinger was a class of some kind in Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. So it, was just, so it was just funny to be like, here's magic and sorcery and bows and arrows, and then gun. <laughs> For some reason, I just found that kind of funny. Because it's just like, oh, man, they're in a good for Oh, jeez, he's packing heat. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets, like, legitimately terrifying, too, the first time you see him wearing like the mask of the demon oh yeah um, well it, it's a uh, he can call it the mask of the demon but that's a plague doctor mask you can't hide that from me <laughs> i mean it looks cool though i'm just being pedantic about it <laughs> um, but i but i mean like yeah vax is kind of the like the head on the shoulders of everyone trying to keep everything calm and collected pike is goes through an arc of just like rekindling her magic connection to the uh the religion that her cleric is attached to uh vax is kind of like the snarky rogue which yeah you haven't we've all seen that before but i did think he had enough lines to make that work worth it with him saying like those are bad ideas and you should feel bad (laughs) despite him being like the butt of like everyone's jokes he's actually my second favorite character Partially because the few times that I played D&D, I would usually play a bard. Um, So I 
I very much appreciated uh, his approach to their mission. You can say it's a typical thing for a bard to run their mouth a little long, but you know, it works if you can make it, if you can execute it well. Like I love his line saying like, let me be annoying. (laughs) It's like, he's even self-aware and accepting that he is the worst person in the room at times. Uh, it reminds me of this one line from Harmon Quest when uh, Kumail Nanjiani was on and his character is just like the worst person in the room at all times. <laughs> and Dan Harmon's character is just like, okay, listen, and they're about to fight like this dragon. And he's like, okay, listen, this is your w- last chance to stop being the worst. <laughs> but they do make him Scanlan more than just the horny bard, which is, of course, the whole uh, jokes online about bards. Being like, can I charm this thing and then maybe sleep with it? And it's just like, (laughs) oh, God. Okay, roll and see what happens. (laughs) But, of course, uh, I think some of the more straightforward humor comes from uh, uh, Grog. Uh, Yeah, voiced by uh, Travis Willingham. He's like, of course, kind of the straightforward, like, dense barbarian. But I love a lot of his lines and they do actually give him a great little dynamic between pike and how he actually does have more of a heart and a brain inside that skull of violence and drinking in it in his head i love that one scene where he's like hacking away at stuff and he's just like one two three four five six eleven all the letters <laughs> or it's just like when they're helping out the rebellion later on in the in the story arc and it there's no beer there's no grog left and it's like oh you gotta be freaking kidding me and then he picks up a, ba- a barrel and then chucks at the wall and there was beer in it and he's like oh come on and then of course uh when they encounter giants i forgot if it was either vax or percy who acts him so like it's like, can you talk to these giants? And he's just like, oh, why? Because we all look the freaking same? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Grog actually has like a bit of like self-awareness and such. Or just like how he, like during the big speech of like defending the town and taking down the villains, he's just like, let's just kill freaking everything. <laughs> he does get like all of the best lines. Yeah, which I know that's kind of the trope also to make the barbarian just the big beef head who has very little brains and very little attention spans. But I, like I said, I'm glad that they elevated the characters beyond just like the tropes of their class because that's very easy to just typecast like, like the, the horny bard, the dumb barbarian, the edgy, snarky rogue and such. Character dynamics are great. I love little moments like when uh, they're at the bar at the beginning. Uh, Kalith is about to get like ready to get into a fight and then she pukes. And then Pike is like, it's like, hey, it's okay. Just have it on. Oh, oh God, it, that, that was chunky. <laughs> <laughs> about to puke herself because of course it's like, it's like that thing of you see someone yawn and then you can't help but yawn. It's that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's always a, another reoccurring joke where someone pukes and they're like, Oh God, I saw it now. Now I'm going to... <laughs> There's also a couple um, nods to the fact that this is based on a D&D campaign. There's one gag where like 
a couple guards are you know rolling dice that part was so weird like it caught me on i mean it was probably my favorite joke of the bunch uh, like just that one little joke of them playing i'm curious what kind of game they're playing <laughs> like yeah seriously like is a fantasy world to them like our modern day to that like and such like is it like a reverse dungeon and dragons because they've done that before where uh, certain shows would do like a modern day office work building setting <laughs> and then there's just like it's like the boss ask, is asking you for the papers and but you forgot to download them onto uh, microsoft like xl and then it's like saving throw <laughs> <laughs> for stuff like that but again i was just so impressed by the action of this show it was very crisp it was very readable and it was intense and a lot very exciting i guess i just don't think about that with american animation unless it's like powerhouse and such maybe i'm overhyping the animation for this show i think because um tight mouse is more u.s based most shows that we watch like on disney channel or or netflix they usually outsource animation to like korea and you know places outside of the u.s it makes the show feel a little bit more special that this is you know mostly local local animation teams which just kind of makes it a little bit more impressive as far as the action goes it's easy to follow and it's also very uh, character based too there's a lot more uh, dramatic heft to each of these scenes it's not just action for the sake of action Right, they give everyone time to shine. Like either have like a fight scene or like an action bit or a dialogue bit. They never quite fall into the trap of like trying to be like anime also, where like with way over the top facial expressions of anime and such. They keep the character like expressions mostly consistent. Yeah, which is nice. Like I know sometimes I'm like, I like that they broke character model but here it's just like i don't think it would have been as good if they went like the more comedy anime route they kind of like did a more toned down version of like how avatar does their stuff i don't really have too much to complain about like i kind of wondered if they were doing too many little plot lines at first because it of course the first two episodes or so are about the dragon and just like where the dragon came from and then it's all about uh, Silas Briarwood and then Percy's connection to him. And then it, it really just goes like that's the first arc of this show, pretty much. It's you get the two episodes where they're just like, oh, we're a goofy and wacky bunch of members of a guild. And then it's like, oh man, stuff's hit the fan and we got to be serious now. I and, talked about this in my editorial, but those first two episodes, I think, are really important to a establish the tone of the series and b establish who these characters are so that once you actually get into the meat of the story we're not wasting too much time with introductions when we can just kind of push the narrative forward but they do make sure to put in just like a few moments of just like implied like either relationship dynamics or Something like that. Like, I love the part where Scanlan and Grog are trying to find Sir Fence in the second episode. And, like, they're sitting down and Scanlan's just like, 
I think he'll be in the brothel because that's just who he is. <laughs> Grog's just like, will you pick me up a sandwich? If like if you're going out, and he's just like, Grog, I'm not going to get a sandwich. I'm going to get information. And Grog's like, can you give me a sandwich? And then Scanlan's like, okay, what do you want? <laughs> like, there's good camaraderie between them, or like uh, Vax's relationship with Gilmore, the uh, the fabulous merchant, voiced by Sunil Malhotra, and they're the implied like, oh, they've been in bed together. Like, I know we all kind of said like the show makes you know uh, Scanlan is the horniest one of all, but Vax has done things <laughs> yeah the fact that this world feels so lived in it's a nice touch it does help that at least in terms of like the main cast these guys have been playing these characters for seven years now they know these characters like inside and out while the series is like generally accessible to everyone there is a bit more added value if you're like already a fan of critical role No, but I like that it's more open to getting into because nothing kills my mood more than watching something where it's just like, am I really going to have to do extra homework? Like I, to me, I guess look up enough info so you kind of know what you're getting into, but you shouldn't have to do homework to watch a show. Agreed. Or like a movie or something like that. And, like, this is what I have to tell, like, with people I watch movies with. It's saying, like, when I'm introducing them a movie, I give them just, like, a quick little fun facts. Here's what we're getting into. And then we watch. That's what I really liked about this show. And I honestly prefer this show over Invincible. As many highs as Invincible has, it has a few things that I think Legend of Vox Machina does better. Like, it's almost like a... It's not, I'm not saying this is what it is. It's not saying like Invincible crawled so Vox Machina could run because I'm sure they were pretty much in production around the same time anyway. It's just like, I like what Vox Machina does more than Invincible, even though I like both shows. The more I think about it, this show has, I don't know if this show has like higher highs, but it certainly does not have as many. I was a big fan of Invincible. But it definitely left a lot of room for improvement. The Legend of Vox Machina, by the end of like the 12th episode, I was ready for season two. Which we are getting. So that's pretty nice to know already that they have a lot of faith in this. Because Critical Role has been going on for like seven plus years, they're never going to run out of story material. I'll be curious to see how they carry the story forward because I'd love to see them continue as long as they want to. I know there's some discussions going on right now with like the current critical role storyline about what, like where it's located and such. I'm not going to get into that. If you want to, you can look up some articles uh, talking about it right now to see like well-intentioned, but kind of like uh, hmm, questionable elements of it. But I will definitely be checking back with season two. Now, hopefully they take their time, you know, again, give the people working on these shows the time they need. Time, resources, etc. Hashtag New Deal for animation. Right, right. You know, I think it's so far my favorite show of the year. Well, it's an early front runner. All 12 episodes are on Amazon Prime and highly recommend this one. 
Now, before we get out of here, we do have some recommendations. One that I'm very excited to talk about is the first two episodes of The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder. It's been, what, 15 or 17 years since The Proud Family ended, and no one was really expecting a revival of this show, but this was announced in, I think this was announced like uh, two years ago during that like Disney Plus day. And yeah, I I wasn't sure what to expect when this was first announced, but after watching the first two episodes, I forgot how much I enjoyed like the show's sense of humor, the fact that it has its ear pretty much very close to the, to the ground in terms of like pop culture, social commentary, understanding youth culture. It's just great to see these characters again. My one critique is that instead of Penny and her friends moving up to high school, they're still 14 years old. So there are questions of whether or not the Proud Family movie is even considered canon anymore. On the whole, I'm just really happy that these characters are back. And I look forward to discussing the season as a whole once we get to the end. I enjoyed those first two episodes. I think there are some elements that are a little rough and mostly just from a, uh, like, it was a pretty manic first episode. But I overall really enjoyed those two. I'm a little curious to see how they handle other plot lines. Like, because I think they did a pretty good job setting up some dynamics to have like for drama and whatnot but uh i think yeah i agree i think the new show is off to a pretty solid start the second episode is definitely the stronger one for sure i i had some mixed thoughts about that one as well but overall though the humor is and the animation is as great but yeah for my recommendation i want to recommend paramount plus and nickelodeon's big nate we talked about the trailer recently where it's just like, oh my gosh, this show looks amazing with its faux CGI stop motion look. And I watched the first few episodes of the of the eight episodes that are now out. Like the whole season's up, so. And it's really charming. They go far with the humor. And the animation is just constantly incredible to look at. The lighting, the movements, the expressions. Like the team that worked on this show who are very active on Twitter. So if you like the show, just tell them like, hey, they did an amazing job. We're given the time to make this show as cool as it does. I'm very happy for that because I was not very impressed with a lot of Paramount Plus's offerings. I haven't seen the Star Trek show, not Lower Decks, the uh, the other one. Prodigy. And But I think... Big Nate is their first real smash hit animated series that's exclusive to the service. Because it's kind of telling that Paramount Plus and Comedy Central are not uploading the episodes of Fairview onto the service. So, <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I watched the first episode and I was just like, well, this is a front runner for the worst new show of the year. <laughs> Uh, it's a shame. Adult animation can do so much better. And we've seen it do so much better because we just talked about Vox Machina. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm happy to hear that Big Nate is like, is 
a win because ever since the Peanuts movie came out, I've been jonesing for more like comic strip adaptations. If like CG animation is just going to be the standard, then I'm kind of happy to have stuff like the Captain Underpants movie, the Peanuts movie. But yeah, that's my recommendation. Definitely give Paramount Plus a like, give it a week and then watch the uh, like a free trial and watch that show. It's so good. So that'll do it for this episode. But until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I also run my own website called camseyeview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camseyeview. And that will be all. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. You can also look for us on Podchaser and uh, the Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Mean escape, so do we. That'll do it for this installment of Renegade Animation. Thank you guys for listening, and we will catch you guys later. Peace out.